Welcome to the Long-Term Care Chronicles podcast. Maitley and Nico for coming on to the Long-Term Care Chronicles. And before we start, can I get you just to tell us about, uh, tell our listeners about yourselves and why you created the group? Sure. Um, I'll go first. My name is Miko Cook and um, I live in Ventura, California, but uh, my loved one is my dad who has late stage Alzheimer's and is in a skilled nursing facility in Albany, New York. Uh, And that is how I was led on this journey, actually. I am the co-founder of a national grassroots advocacy organization called the Essential Caregivers Coalition that I started with Maidalee last June. It was born out of a Facebook group when we went to Facebook and tried to figure out how to save our parents. So that's me. Yeah, very similar. Hi, my name is Maidalee Weissman. I'm also, I'm the co-founder of Essential Caregivers Coalition. Um, I'm also in California, although our coalition is national and we have many different state members. um, We both happen to live in California and my mom is actually living in long-term care. So that is what inspired me to, uh, to start this with Miko. Great, thank you for that. And so we'll start. And uh, first, can you just let our listeners know your definition of what family essential caregiver is and why you felt it needed a clear cut definition? Maybelline. Yeah. <laughs> I was deferring to you. Uh, yeah, so, so I think it's important to note that family is not always blood, but it can be chosen. So um, we actually dropped the name family. We used to have family in our title. Uh, we just call ourselves essential caregivers um, because we didn't want anyone to mistake that for being an, an only family uh, relation. Um, so right, an essential caregiver is someone that the resident chooses. They're the ones who designate who will be their essential caregiver. We're usually people that um, are very close to them already. We have a historical relationship with them. Um, Could be friends, family, um, anyone who loves them uh, and knows them well. And we usually care for them. It could be companionship, it could be psychosocial, it could be hands-on care. Uh, We all have a slightly different role in each of our loved one's lives. Thank you for that. And as well, can you just give our audience just a brief overview of what the Essential Caregiver Coalition is and what your mandate for helping seniors and the vulnerable population? Sure, I can tackle this one. Um, So the Essential Caregivers Coalition, basically we came together as a Facebook group. uh, And at the time it was a lot of support for other people and ourselves to figure out what was happening during the lockdown when all long-term care facilities locked down on March 13th of 2020 as a result of the pandemic. So a lot of us were just family members who would care for our loved ones, who would visit our loved ones, and then got a phone call one day. Uh, And after desperately trying to reach out to the administrators of the facility, as well as the Department of Health, as well as the governor and our legislators and the media, we found that the best place to try to figure out what was happening and find answers was actually on Facebook. So as a result, we came to Facebook to do just that. Um, The Essential Caregiver Coalition was born out of that idea uh, of trying to learn. And as we learned, we really kind of shifted more away from the support aspect of who we are, which we do offer that. There are also other groups on Facebook that really focus more on the support. And Maidalee and I tried to amass a warehouse of information. 
when you have a loved one in long-term care, and it, it might not necessarily be somebody who's elderly, uh, there are parents with adult children, there are parents with young children, there are adult group homes, and that is literally the tip of the iceberg. So you have to almost jump in and give yourself a college education on what long-term care means and all the different types of facilities and which organizations support which facilities and how does the state interact. And so that's what we did. We used essential caregivers first on Facebook and then at the end of the year, we moved to a website because we realized not everyone's on Facebook so that we could build a storehouse of articles and journal postings and all of these things so that the people who are out there trying to learn had a place to come where they could do the research, where they could learn who do I write to and what do I do? And I, I just need some context. Um, as a result of that, we really started to focus our efforts on progress towards how do we make change? How do we find the power structure? Where does the power come from? And how do we make change either at the legislative level, at the, we've worked with um, filing complaints with the Office of Civil Rights and trying to educate our users how to do that, or our, our members, I shouldn't say users, our members. Um, and then advocacy with other ally organizations, how to band together and get things done. And now we're looking uh, more closely at what can we do at the federal level? So really we've moved from support to education and really about advocacy. Yeah, Fantastic. and also empowerment. Oh, sorry. Yeah, no, go ahead, yeah. go ahead. <laughs> I think an important element of our organization is that citizens, professional advocates, attorneys, um, experts uh, in long-term care and also um, disabilities um, and, uh, and Jerry topics, they all came together and everyone has, including ombudsman actually, they've all come together in this place uh, to exchange actions that they're already taking and that inspired so many others. And, you know, many of our members came and they educated us in addition to each other. So, you know, everyone comes with something and they contribute to uh, this movement. Um, something that actually uh, has been percolating for so many years, you know, all of the changes that have been necessary in long-term care aren't just happening now. I mean, they're, they're not just necessary now, they've been necessary for many years and they've been very slowly getting chipped away at. And this pandemic has revealed so many ugly truths and also some winners, you know, some, some very dedicated people who are looking to change the way long-term care uh, is mm -hmm. delivered to consumers. So, you know, there, there's bad and good, but what happened is we ended up being educated by our members and they ended up educating each other. And then as a result, everyone taking action really has uh, snowballed into a bigger effort and has pushed us along to, uh, Absolutely. to, to work harder, smarter. <laughs> and tonight, I have after. to say, I've learned so much from our members. There's aspects of what goes on in long-term care that I wouldn't, questions I wouldn't have even thought mm -hmm. to ask, but because they bring all these experiences to the table yeah. and a vast amount of knowledge, it's really helped us all become, uh, level up the playing field very quickly yes. because we are this collective that's come yeah. together. And I have to say, even though we are U.S., we're, mm -hmm. we're looking at U.S. law, we're looking yes. to change, you know, um, it, you know, U, U.S. states public health policy. However, we also have members that are from Canada, all throughout Canada, mm -hmm. also throughout the U.K., because these yeah. are um, uh, these are two areas of the world that are also very vocal about this issue. Yes. Um, mm -hmm. And I hope that we all win together. So, so if you look at our Twitter page, uh, page, um, if you look at our Twitter, you'll see that we reshare everything yes. from advocacy groups and citizens in those locales and really anywhere. If if they only speak up, we'll find them. Right. We share them, and yeah. they share 
our uh, our news and our insights and our problems too. So so it's a big conversation around the globe. No, that's very good and and great that you're making all those connections because there are some universal truths that everyone is speaking and what they're what's been impacting them at this time. Human rights, really. Exactly. Pretty much. Yes, mm-hmm. absolutely. And would you be able to speak to about some of what what are some of the policymakers are proposing in terms of helping long-term care residents to get out of isolation? Well, there are many states that are actually proposing bills and the language is mixed because, um, you know, in each state, everyone, every state has a a different way of proposing bills and a a different author, a different uh, sponsorship process. And so, some of our members have been involved in some of those and then sometimes we're not. Um, so it's a mixed bag in terms of what we have our fingers in, if we do. Uh, mm-hmm. And also I don't think any of the bills truly address this situation uh, in the way that it has to be addressed. Uh, none of them yet. There are 17, 18 actually, if we include the federal uh, amendment. For the Social Security Act. Yeah, I mean, right now, even so, my focus has generally been New York State, which is where my dad is, and so I track on what's happening there. And so, New York State specifically, when the lockdown happened, and a few months after that, people realized we weren't going anywhere, and these doors really weren't opening very quickly. Uh, there was a scramble to kind of get bills written to figure out, okay, maybe if we just change the law in the state, we can make a difference. And as a result, I think there was at one time eight different uh, bills that were proposed, which have then, you know, modified and moved into, and now there's one sitting on the desk of the governor. But even then, when you create legislative action, you have to be super careful about the language that you're using because you could also be creating loopholes or whatever. So really right now, this is the push that's happening across the United States and everybody's kind of trying to go at it differently. So like, for example, in Kentucky, uh, when they wrote their bill, that actually wasn't just an essential caregiver bill. It was a portion of another bill that was trying to remove the executive order and the power of the governor at the time. But the way that they put it into the bill was, oh, you know, we'll just get this through and then we'll work it out, work it out on the other side. So, and then in, for example, uh, Arkansas, who just passed their bill, it's an entire bill that ended up being passed as an emergency act. Um, and they're the only state that's frankly had it passed completely. Um, there's also the issue of various bills landed on the desks when a lot of the legislators were in session. So it, it's kind of, we are all learning as a citizen, as a private citizen, what power do you have? And then how do you affect change at the local, state, and federal level? So policies, that is what, that is one of the biggest uh as they say, nailing jello to the wall issues that we've been trying to figure out is, well, it, how do we make change if we make change here, but it doesn't affect here? And we're still chasing this uh, yeah. around and around. And that can be very tough as well. So you definitely have to be mentally strong to be <laughs> continuing onwards with yeah. this as well, right? So there's a fortitude that comes with that. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely, there would be. And can would you be able to share as well the key stories of what you've heard from some residents during this pandemic and how you've helped them get the help and the justice by being their voice? Sure. So there's actually a group that I work with um, in New York City back in August of 2020, there was, New York State had a joint hearing of Senate and Assembly on residential healthcare facilities and COVID-19. They were trying to figure out what is going on in these facilities. And one of the people uh, that testified on the panels, there were these panels of family members 
but actually one of the people who testified was actually a resident. His name is Vince Pierce. And he is a resident of the Cola Rehabilitation and Nursing Center in Roosevelt Island, which is a part of New York City. And at the time, uh, Kohler is a skilled nursing facility. It has 500 beds. And back in the spring when New York City was on COVID meltdown and they just, it was like a war zone. They didn't know how to handle the amount of infected patients and people dying from, from the virus. Uh, the mayor of New York City, Bill de Blasio, went on to a press conference and said, everybody, it's going to be okay because we are going to put uh, infected patients into Kohler. We're going to bring it back online because it's an empty facility. At the time, it was not empty. 200 people lived in this facility. And not only did they live in this facility, the majority of them, because it's a skilled nursing facility, are bedridden and they live in wheelchairs. And so these people moved in infected patients into the room with the healthy patients. There was no separation. There wasn't proper PPE. There wasn't even proper PPE for the staff. And people started dying. And it wasn't until uh, Vince went to the press and said, you need to help us, that the story broke and things started to change. Um, I connected with them in September. I think that was that was August. So like September, October, I went back and said, what happened to you guys? Like, where are things now? And from my work at the Essential Caregivers Coalition and everything that we had learned in our group, I was able to go back to them and say, okay, let's talk about what are they telling you? And do you understand your rights? Because that really is the number one thing that every single person in long-term care really has to understand inside of this and out are what are your resident rights, uh, especially during a time when those rights are being compromised. Uh, so since that time, uh, I'm now part of the Kohler Task Force, which is working with the administration of the facility as well as health and human hospitals to try to get change, to get visitation. Uh, to work with the Department of Health to understand how long people have been in isolation or how short the staffing levels are and how that's impacting the residents. Uh, Vince Pierce has started Nursing Home Lives Matter, which is an organization that is focused on trying to raise the dignity of people who are living in nursing homes, particularly in the black and brown populations, which is the majority of who lives at Kohler. Um, and so it's really about, you know, connecting with people. And the thing that's exciting about them getting involved is in the majority of the groups that we work with and the members of our own group are all loved ones, right? And we have somebody who's in a facility. The Nursing Home Lives Matter crew are so special because they are residents. And they're like the voice in the storm. And so as a result, they've really been able to highlight a lot of what's going on in a way that you know we can do, but we can only do in a limited capacity. So that's just one example of, of how we're trying to connect these organizations and bring them in. I mean, Nursing Home Lives Matter was a big part of the national campaign that we were all just a part of. So it's right. it's taking that one voice like a match and making it an explosion so that we can really make lasting change. Yeah. Do you have anything to add, Natalie? Uh, <laughs> well, I just wanted to say that's a very good specific example um, because you don't often hear from the residents inside, mm -hmm. you know, and we don't want to be their voice. We want to hear their voices. We want yeah. to amplify those yeah. voices, you know, so, but it's so hard to hear them behind locked doors and closed windows. Yeah. So they're, I think they're unique and they're very strong and they're getting stronger. So they're a really terrific example of a resident experience, but also unique in that they're finding that they do have a voice and that they have power and they're, they're exercising that and getting stronger as a result. I'd really love to see other residents experience that 
I know that a lot of residents uh, in my mom's home have cognitive uh, disabilities, communication disabilities, um, some intellectual disabilities. So sometimes, you know, you're, so in those cases, you really hear from the resident representatives, the people who look out for them, usually their closest loved one, power of attorney. Exactly. Um, and so it's unfortunate that we can't hear their voices uh, because they can't just come outside and represent. So, so we do end up relying a lot on the family members to mm-hmm. have a voice um, for those folks because um, it's absent from the conversation. It doesn't mean that they're absent though. Mm-hmm. So right. our lawmakers have to understand these are full human beings with rights that should be heard, that we should make an extra effort to hear. Exactly. So I think that's a great example that Miko gives. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And then I know that your group has done some research in terms of the relief of the situation for residents being locked up. And through you know, the research, what, is the, what are some leading countries, cities, what have they found in terms of pioneering the excellence of long-term care during this pandemic? And would you be able to provide some examples of what you think is excellence in quality of care and family engagement? You know, it's, it, those stories are unfortunately drowned out by all of the despair right now. However, one of our members in uh, Germany, she actually has loved ones here in the US that she can't bring home to Germany, but she does reflect on, you know, Germany's very restrictive policies from the beginning. However, they never, from what I've heard, they never actually kept family out of long-term care. They found a way to keep that connection. So despite having national restrictions, you know, so uh, this is, this is something that we hear, of course, through our German, our German member. So uh, it's not my direct experience. My direct experience is that it's hard to come by those success stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I can definitely see that as being a, a hard one, especially during this pandemic and what the experiences have really been for everybody involved uh, for that. So now this is going specifically to your state. Um, you know, Would you be able to speak to, I guess, how the wildfires and emergency evacuation impacted long-term care in California last summer and how your organization was able to highlight some of the gaps in care for residents in long-term care? Well, last summer it affected you know, my mom because she yes. wouldn't be able to, I didn't want her to come outside during wildfires. So that affected where, it, it was, it was creeping into her area. So we didn't want her outside. We didn't want her windows open. We didn't want her breathing in any of that toxic stuff. So um, I can tell you that I wasn't the only one. <laughs> so I know that many, many people suffered um, and they lost even just that tiny bit of connection that they could have at the window or in an outdoor visit 10 feet away from each other. What we did probably was mostly news stories. Most of our members, um, a lot of press would reach out to us and ask us, do you have family who can speak to this? Do you know residents who can discuss this with us? Um, and so we would um, refer them out to family members that we knew were struggling with that particular issue. Okay. It was really just about awareness, raising awareness. Mm-hmm. And it was yet another example, a lot like winter, you know, yes. in cold states, you know, yeah. or or you know, in Quebec, for instance, right? right. Uh, it's not unlike that. It's just a different beast, you know, the cold versus yeah. breathing in air. Exactly, and then bitter cold, I should say. It's not cold is a, a an understatement. Yes, <laughs> cold, bitter, <laughs> yeah, wind. Yes, <laughs> all those things, all those things, and. So I know right now your group has a number of call to actions currently to further the message, such as the social media campaign of Isolation Kills 2 and the Yellow Letter Writing Campaign. And would you be able to inform our listeners about these certain uh, call to actions that you have currently on on the go? Sure. Actually, what you're referencing is um, the national campaign that Mika was talking about. So, you know, we're just part of many other organizations. We, We all came together 
in the U.S. to create a national campaign called the Baniversary. Yes. Um, that was actually coined by someone from an organization here called Canner. Um, and uh, actually Tony, right? Tony took his head. Yeah. Tony yeah. took <laughs> and we borrowed it from him. He gave it to us. And, um, you know, we brought it back to other groups that that wanted to have some. Um, they wanted to make a statement about the year that they've all been locked up or that their loved ones have been locked up. And these are all advocacy groups or advocacy organizations like us, um, all different sizes and in different states throughout the U.S., yeah. And so uh, actually Miko and Carrie, um, uh, you guys were both really the heads of this national uh, movement. And so you could probably talk more to it. I was more yeah. involved in California for okay. that. So essentially what it was, was knowing that we were about to gather historical momentum and capitalizing on the fact that we have been doing this for a year and everyone needs to acknowledge that people have been locked away from their loved ones for a year. So it was, how can we really raise the awareness and the impact of what we have? And, and it was this really gelling moment for all of these groups all over the place to come together as one solid voice. And as a result, there was this yeah. camp, this national campaign focused around the battle cry of isolation kills too. Yes. So yes, COVID can kill, but isolation kills too. And this was a very su successful campaign that was driven by the Texas Caregivers for Compromise group um, yeah. earlier in or at towards the end of 2020, I think it was like late summer, early fall. Mm -hmm. And because of that, they really got the attention of their governor and their department of health and things started to change. So we said, you know what, you've had success with that. Let's take that. So we use that as our central focal point and all of the states uh, came together and had their groups start a yellow envelope letter campaign. So all yes. the letters we'd been writing all year we continued, but this time we put them in yellow envelopes. So that yellow kept going across the desks of the governors and CMS and CDC. Uh, and in addition to that, so hundreds of thousands of yellow envelopes came across all these desks. Wow. And then there were, you know, lawn signs and there were email campaigns. And then we had in-person gatherings where people were gathering on the steps of their capital and there were vigils. Yes. So that we recognized all that was lost, the lives that was that were lost during yes. this year. So this national campaign is actually continuing. We did do that. We, we were really successful in blowing up a lot of momentum. We had over 30 news articles and stories told about what was happening. And in the midst of it all, CMS reissued their guidance, I think, probably on the 10th. Mm -hmm. And the entire week was from the 8th to the 13th. So wow. CMS reissued their guidance and that actually, there were a lot of people who said, great, it's over, you're done, right? And that's when we really had to jump into the education and say, no, now we really get started. Because exactly. even though CMS issued their guidance, there are still states today that have not accepted that guidance. Yeah. And we're what, two weeks from that experience? Uh, so at the time, we just dug our heels in a little bit more. Uh, yeah. And now on the backside of that campaign, people are still writing letters, people are still sending emails, and now they're more pointed and focused at the Department of Health within their states. If they haven't had reissued guidance, this is the case for New York State. New York State has changed nothing since CMS came out. So the facilities are still in a 14 day lockdown whenever there's any one case at any point within the facility. Um, there are states who came out and said, you know what, we're not actually going to acknowledge the guidelines at all. And then there are states who reissued their own versions of the guidelines. And on top of that, you have assisted living facilities and these other kinds of facilities who do not fall under the guidance of CMS. So they're still locking people out, irregardless of what CMS is doing. So this continues on. So our calls yes. to action are still very valid. People can still go to the isolationkills.org website. Perfect. and write letters and, and sign petitions and share social media and continue to peck away at this because 
it, it's not a one and done campaign, unfortunately. No, it has to be an ongoing conversation. Mm -hmm. And I'll put that as well in the show notes so people can be able to Thank you. put that there and, and go to that site. And talking about the anniversary, I know on March 13th was the anniversary in which you refer to as the anniversary. <laughs> and you held an honor walk in Arcadia at the for the national rights for residents in long-term care. Can you guys speak to that? Mm -hmm. Sure, we didn't just do that actually. Yeah. A few, uh, a couple days before that, we were up in San Francisco also. Yes. So, you know, and that was with actually the, the long-term care uh, ombudsman program up there uh, and some of our members from the California team. Uh, yeah, and then we, we met in Arcadia, which is in Los Angeles County. Um, and we had a really nice turnout. KTLA, were, they were kind enough to do... Um, to, to do a segment um, on our group and our mission uh, just the day before. Mm -hmm. I think it was the day before. Yeah. And a lot of people showed up because of that. They saw that. Yeah. And um, we didn't get arrested. So I'd say it was that. <laughs> <laughs> Correct. That's always a plus. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And then <laughs> now, Leading to that, I know a couple of, you know, a couple of days before that, that was when the most recent update uh, by the California Department of Public Health, referring to AFL 20.22.6, looked promising for allowing visitation to long-term care facilities. However, there are many different criteria which can be confusing with color code visitation based on county. And if this is indoor or outdoor, can you just let our listeners know as to how this impacts family visiting and being able to interpret all of these different, um, almost, you know, not even clear uh, objectives being indicated in the- uh, Yeah, in the they're really trying though, right? Yeah. Um, the, the color codes were technically there already, um, but yeah, they added, so if you're not, um, if you're not vaccinated and a lot of people still aren't eligible for vaccination. Uh, so if you're in that unfortunate category, which is pretty wide right now, um, you have to test every two days, <laughs> which is not, I mean, it's, I guess if you're just a general visitor who's popping by to see, you know, your relative when you're, when you happen to be here and yes. you don't visit every day to help out or, you know, to be a part of their lives and to ensure that they have um, psychosocial support, then it's not so much of a hardship, but someone who has to get tested every two days, yeah. um, that can be a lot of work. It's time consuming, it's expensive, yes. you know, insurance covers. Um, and so that that's a, a block. And then um, they're still not really recognizing you know, there's a difference between uh, visitors and mm -hmm. family members who are considered essential to the resident, um, okay. to their care, to their oversight, to their uh, personal connection needs. Uh, you know, they, they do include compassionate care and they make sure that that's still happening, but that's um, sort of a, it's a, it's finite, you know, it's, oh, yeah. if they're crying, come and help them for that day or, you know, if they're end of life, come and say goodbye. And then everybody's guessing at what day that will be. Um, there are a lot of problems with compassionate care. So, um, you know, we, we just, I, I read it and I had a hard time with all of it because they're just skipping over something that's so important. And if from the beginning of the pandemic, we recognized that certain family members could be collaborators in public health, follow the same strict guidelines um, in regard to infection control that staff follows or should follow yes. um, and are willing to go in knowing that they may risk being infected if there happens to be an unforeseen breakout, uh, you know. Um, they should have been part of the public health plan from the beginning. Mm -hmm. So when I look at these, um, these attempts at, you know, uh, trying to return residents' rights um, restore them. Yeah. It's, it's, to me, it's so far away from what it should be. Um, and it's so restrictive in terms of, um, 
being, I guess, it's almost ignorant. You know, they're, they're, they're not really aware of the needs of the people who are in these care homes. They're not, they're not all clinical, you know, they're not all clinical needs. And, and there are different types of loved ones. There are different yes. there are visitors and then there are the caregivers. And even if a certain care home doesn't allow hands-on care, we're certainly there with the connection and the historical relationship, um, the, the cognitive benefits of that connection, the psychosocial support, emotional support. Um, those are all contributing to uh, failure to thrive, which is right. unfortunate when you see it on someone's death certificate yeah. because you know that was avoidable. Yeah. One of the points that I like to make when, you know, one of the arguments is, but this is what staff does, right? You know, we have staff who watch over your mom or your dad or your husband or your wife, uh, as well as, as any, as you would do, you know, we are giving them that care. And my response is, my dad is never going to start crying when the staff member leaves the room because he doesn't know when they're coming back, but he's going to start crying when I, if I were there and I'd leave the room. And And they're also, they're also not addressing this big elephant in the room, which is that staff is not paid a livable wage in the majority of cases. They work so many jobs. They're overwhelmed because staffing is short most of the time. Even when they're meeting the minimums, it's still not enough to care for the residents in the homes. So there's no time really to stop and and provide that psychosocial support, especially in a, a highly stressed environment um, like that of you know a public health emergency. So when lockdowns happen, they lose all the support that family members would normally provide, right. and they're not talking about how how much of an impact that loss has had on their caregivers, you know, their staff caregivers. But I exactly. can see that it's it's clear to me had quite an impact and also the turnover Mm -hmm. not to mention the turnover so residents you know they've been moved from room to room and people who have any type of cognitive disability that's a that's a a, requires a new adjustment it's a it's a, a shock to their system and then they lose staff members you know when the staff members turn over there's new faces now to get to know it feels like you're in a strange place with strange people in these yeah. scenarios. And this is a, a common story being told. So I know that it's not just a few individuals, yeah. it's many. No, definitely would be many. And it, it, it's just very, it's hard for that person to adjust because they may not even know what's going on around them to be able to know that this is a different face, different person and having to be adjusted to their own personality, right? So- Well, that's exactly what's happening with my dad. You know, as his Alzheimer's, he went into the facility knowing full well who my brother and my mother and my sister were and now they disappear. And you try to explain a man who has a hard time with, and you know, understanding what a shoelace is sometimes that there's this global pandemic coming and your family didn't just actually leave you and never want to come back one day. How do you exactly. explain that? You can't, you can't explain it. And honestly, it. I don't hear staff trying to explain it a lot no. of the time because some people have to hear it every day or every hour, uh, you know, in some way <laughs> that they can understand. Um, and at some point that becomes draining for staff. You know, they have a lot of responsibility already on top of that, so. Yeah, exactly. And this kind of goes into, uh, you know, the next question in terms of this whole lack of visitation. What has, what has been the impact for some of your members to know that their loved ones are without them and how they feel if they feel guilty for not, you know, being there because they never meant to quote unquote abandon them uh, yeah. by being there, right? I think, I think, I don't know about guilt. I don't see a lot of guilt conversation happening. I see a lot of anger yes. and uh, even at times yeah. despair. I think, um, 
there is huge amounts of grief that we are going through grief on so many levels. I mean, I just think about who my dad was when he went in and in, in a lot of ways, my family is one of the lucky ones because my dad is still alive, right? They didn't have to say goodbye through a window or on FaceTime. And I can't even reconcile the amount of grief someone has to go through without having that kind of connection at the very end. But there's a different grief that I know my family goes through, which is my dad had so many precious moments stolen from us where he did remember who we were, where he could connect to his grandchildren, where he had these moments where he connected to who he was himself. I mean, in a lot of ways, who he was was stolen from him in that way. Uh, and now I see another, a new form of grief forming in the conversations because as some people are getting visitation because the CMS guidelines have been reissued and there are some facilities who are following that and are able to hug people, not a lot of them, but they're out there. And so you'll see someone post pictures and say, I've hugged my mother today, look at these pictures. And for every one of those, there's like 10 to 15 people in the comments that's like, I'm so happy for you. This kind of makes me sick because I, I still can't do it. And that's or a whole my, other new kind of grief that's happening. Yeah. Or my loved one died. My oh, loved one died. Yeah. I'll never. And now get I'm this. watching you get what I can't exactly. ever have. Yeah. yeah. And then there's a whole other uh, level to this. So there are people that are getting inside one way or the other. So yes. either they're in a home that is finding a way to get them in or they have compassionate care. Somehow they're getting in, but there's, they give something up to do that. There's, they're constantly in fear of retaliation for misstepping or seeing something that they shouldn't see, yes. um, that management doesn't want them to know about, that they've been used to not having seen for so long. And suddenly they lose their access for some reason that sounds completely reasonable to management, but we all know it's not, that it's, you know, it's an arbitrary um, decision uh, because you have access and, and you're able to see things and maybe you said something about it. So there's almost like uh, there's a, um, a muzzle on people who mm -hmm. want to speak up for other residents when they happen to see something. Even when we're, you know, potentially in a room, we see other residents nearby and, you know, maybe they're calling for help or they're walking around in their underwear or, you know, they clearly, maybe they fell on the ground and nobody's coming to help them. Um, so some of these people who are inside are afraid that they're going to lose their access if they say something, but they, so they're torn because they really need to say something. Some of those things are, are urgent, but I'm hearing that they're actually afraid to say something and how do they do it without causing yes. friction? So, so that, you know, it's, it's creating this strange um, have and have nots situation. And, and it's, it's, yeah. it's unfortunate for the residents because they could have somebody helping them, you know, by calling, you know, the front desk and saying, hey, can you help this person around the floor without worrying that management's going to come up and be like, okay, your visit's over. Yeah. <laughs> But that's the reality right now. Everybody, everybody who is inside has a little of that in the back of their head, if not a lot of that. Well, I can't even imagine that type of uh, pressure to have in terms of that type of a visit. And then, how do how did you how do your members then cope uh, with during these these type of situations? Like, is there anything that you're offering for your members to to kind of to do or, or support available? Because I know you do other types of support in this type of a situation. You know, I believe that there are other groups that are more support-based. So on our website, you know, we have sort of um, a social website. So people join, they can have conversations. We created groups within that, we call it an online community. So we created groups within it and there is a grief group and there is a family council group and and there are groups for just about 
any topic that comes up in the conversation that we feel we need to have a specific, um, you know, focus group to, to yes. you know, set aside for them. Um, so, so there is support, but um, we're so focused on taking action and solving the problem that we really try to help them find other outlets for that, um, you know, when they need to just um, release their feelings. You know, there That's are right. so many groups out there that, that we're adjacent to that they can, um, that, they, that will satisfy that need. And then, then they're ready to come back and, and fight for their loved ones or fight for the memory of their loved ones. Yeah. I, I think great. one aspect of support that we do provide is that our membership is really close knit. And um, in a lot of ways, when a problem is brought to the website, there'll be at least two to three people jumping in to try to help them understand understand the rights better, understand the pathway towards getting resolution for what it is they're looking for. Uh, so you feel supported in whatever it is that you are trying to work out in that moment. So that's, that's kind of great too. That, that makes you feel like you're not just shouting in a well, that there's yeah. something you can do because that is hugely empowering. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah, that's definitely. That's definitely. Yeah. Thank you for that. And your group is not just only for long-term care change to the visitation, but for all congregate care settings and make this national to ensure that this doesn't happen again. What is, what else is your group doing to further this agenda? Well, right now our primary concern is uh, long-term care, essential okay. caregivers being designated and implemented in public health policy for all long-term care homes. Uh, so that would be state and federal level laws. Um, you know, speaking as someone personally who's had her mom in the hospital a few times and have had to fight tooth and nail to be there with her, um, I also would like to see hospitals have an essential caregiver program as well so that during public health emergencies, there is a collaborative experience with designated family members. Um, and I believe that that long-term care, once we accomplish that in long-term care, it's not that far off for, yes. uh, for hospitals. In fact, there is law already for this in hospitals for people with disabilities. It's just that um, hospitals seem, or I guess hospital staff seem to be uneducated on that. They thought that the pandemic wiped out all of it. Um, actually back in June of last year, Connecticut uh, public health was taken to task on that and they had to revise their language and their directive to ensure that people with uh, disabilities were able to have their caregiver, their person with yes. them. So, you know, but it shouldn't be that hard for people. They shouldn't have to say here, Connecticut was made the same mistake. You shouldn't, you know, this precedent and hey, this still exists in law. They shouldn't have to fight so hard for that. It should be widely known, widely accepted, um, and overt in public health policy. Absolutely. I'd like to see that um, across all congregate care, that when public health policy is made, families are brought to the table. You know, the people who are being affected are helping to make the decisions as opposed to just having the decision made upon the resident, the family, the voice. Uh, I think it's rather short-sighted to create blanket policy and leave it in place for a year and not take into consideration the voices that are being impacted by it, so. Exactly, exactly. And right now, like our elected officials' best efforts, are they being made to protect seniors and provide them with the highest quality of care that they themselves would have wanted in when it's their turn in long-term care? Do you feel that that's being done? I think I would love that to be true. <laughs> I think they are no different than the mass populace, which falls under the misbelief of, well, that's never going to happen to me. Uh, and so 
I think there are many different agendas coming to fruition when it comes to long-term care. Many that we didn't even understand existed before this situation. I would like to think that the elected officials, and I know some of them, mm-hmm. um, are doing their best to rectify this situation, especially the ones who have personal skin in the game, who have somebody who's in a facility or had somebody or is related to somebody. Because once it gets personal, you don't stop the fight. And those are the elected officials who have been helping us further the cause the most. Um, So in that regard, yeah, they're out there. I just want more of them and to have them call us. (laughs) Yes, please call us. Yeah. <laughs> please, please and so how can some of our listeners then be able to engage in your group to get the coalition moving forward with some of these key initiatives can you just let them know sure, sure. um it's really easy you can go to our website which is essentialcaregiverscoalition.org and join Uh, And be part of the conversation. We constantly have conversations going on about what's happening in your state. Are you getting visitation? What are the rules you're reading about? Uh, Help us to understand, especially even, you know, in Canada would be fantastic if we had a larger populace from Canada coming in and uh, helping us understand what's working and what's not working. Um, It's really important that our, you know, other countries are contributing to each other's conversations because we can learn from each other. Exactly. Yes. I I would love to see more of what's working because I know a whole lot about what's not working. Um, So if you have stuff that's working, bring it on. There are some organizations out there that we talk to you Um, that we are learning from and are trying to figure out how to make that part of the bigger picture. Uh, But the more information we have, the better. Absolutely, absolutely. So I'll definitely put all your information in the show notes so people can be able to click on those uh, links and to be able to do that. But I wanted to thank you both for coming on to the Long Term Chronicles and speaking on on this and uh, being able to educate everyone. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thank you.